0: Welcome to the Engaged Midwife Podcast. I'm Missy. This is Kara. In today's episode, we're going to talk about infertility. And it's a topic that's a little near and dear to my heart, but Um, It's important. It's part of our core competencies as midwives that we can address infertility with our patients. And I think it's a topic that sometimes gets overlooked.
1: Yeah. And as midwives, we may not completely independently manage patients presenting with infertility, but it's important for us to be able to talk about the causes, the differential diagnoses, the workup and evaluation, and maybe some initial therapies, and then how we work with our other colleagues in consultation, collaboration, and referral. Right. I think that's great. So let's break down maybe what some of the different etiologies or causes of infertility might be.
0: So there are, there are three basically ways that we classify somebody who has infertility. It's either a female factor, a male factor, or that big category of unknown. Um, that can be a really hard category to be in right? Um, when women don't really, they just, they can't get pregnant, but nobody can find a reason why.
1: Well, and there's a kind of a little like two and a half category that could be that combined female and male factors, right? And so you're right. I think the, the hardest one might be the unknown.
0: It is. So when we talk about what are the female reasons for infertility, we're thinking about, do they have ovulatory dysfunction. So are they not ovulating? Do they have some insufficiency? Are they not producing the right hormones from their HPA axis? Um, You know, do they just, their ovaries aren't responding to FSH? They're not producing the hormones that they need to.
1: Right. And then the other that we oftentimes think about is like pelvic pathology. So is there some sort of uterine anomaly um, or is there tubal occlusion or pelvic adhesions, endometriosis being another reason of pelvic pathology?
0: And also a history of STDs or STIs. Right. Which can lead to that tubal occlusion, right, with scarring. Right. So if we switch to the other side of that and we talk about male reasons, um, you know, big things have to to do with like sperm count and sperm morphology, which means what shape are the sperm? Do they have good heads? Do they have good tails? Are they modal? Can they get where they need to go? Do they swim in the right direction? Or do they swim in circles? Yes.
1: <laughs> and then, you know, some of the anatomical issues that we might have, like, so is there a varicoseal? Does the individual have like phimosis or hypospadias? Or is there even adhesions in the vas deferens that could be anatomically creating some, some,
0: pathology. That two and a half category that you talked about is, you know, are there multiple things going on? Is there something that has to do with the female and the male in that situation? And that can be just a combination of any of those things that we've talked about. Right.
1: Absolutely. And then you mentioned again, like, you know, 10 to 25% of the time, we just don't know what the cause is.
0: No. And that's, um, when I talk about that as a midwife, I think those are the patients that probably need me the most. They need the emotional support of a midwife that's available to them to be able to talk to them, and you know, I often think that we are the providers who are best suited for that because we have the time and the empathy and and maybe the understanding of, you know, how that patient may be feeling.
1: That's such a good point, Missy. I mean, you know, in the past, I've had a high-risk pregnancy, and I felt like that was when I needed my midwife the most. And I think we talk about infertility being sometimes something we need help from our physician colleague friends, but we can't forget our role as a midwife in that. Exactly. So what is our role, Kara? That's a really good point. So we talked a little bit about being able to really start that thorough evaluation. And probably one of the most important things that we can do is take a really good history.
0: Yes. I, I, I alluded to that a bit ago when I talked about like history of STIs and things like that. But I mean, menstrual history, um, have you have your periods changed? Have they always been the same? How long are they? Do you track them? Are they ovulatory? Are they anovulatory? Do you have any family history? Um, are there things that you're that you're thinking of that like may have had a familial component or genetic component? Um, have you been pregnant before and you can't get pregnant now?
1: Right, because infertility is not just someone that can't get pregnant for the first time. Maybe it's maybe they've had a couple of pregnancies and now they're having struggles.
0: I also think when I'm taking those histories about um, what medications are they on, what is their medical history, have they had chemotherapy or radiation, um, you know, what are their sort of what I like to call environmental factors, do they smoke. Um, do they use any kind of drug? Or are they using marijuana daily?
1: What are their exposures in their workplace and in the environment? Those are all really important things that you've mentioned. And again, I think it is important to know about the family history. We've talked so much about the individual's history, but family history can play a really important role
0: here as well. And then we sort of get into like a physical assessment.
1: Yes. Yeah. So obviously, I mean, most simple would be like your vital signs and BMI. And we can't forget how much of a role... Um, obesity and potentially then insulin resistance can play into this, and so you know a simple a simple check
0: of height, weight, and BMI can be really important. And then sometimes it's um, you know one of the things we would add as a pelvic exam: does everything structurally feel like it's supposed to?
1: Yeah. Um, We're also looking for some of those other like endocrine or hormonal things that might tell us that someone's got hyperandrogenism or maybe a little bit of insulin resistance. And so, you know, what is their stature? What about um, hair patterns? Um, Is there any baldness? Is there hirsutism? Do they have maybe some acanthosis nigricans? Um, We talked about acne. Um, Is their thyroid enlarged or are there nodules? Some of those different endocrine reasons can be really helpful to
0: examine evaluate as well. And I feel like all of that falls directly like in the scope of what a midwife does. Absolutely. But I think when we get further than, you know, history taking and a really good physical exam, then we probably need to start engaging some other resources.
1: Yeah. And if we think that we're going to need to engage those other resources, there are some laboratory or diagnostic tests that we could start the process for as we're making referrals.
0: Don't you think? Yes, absolutely. I think we can look at all those hormones that are going on in the HPA axis. Like what's going on with um, with FSH? What's going on with LH, you know, right in that period where a patient should be ovulating? What's happening with the endocrine system?
1: Really simple would be a TSH, right? Just making sure that we don't have someone that's hypothyroid or hyperthyroid would be a really nice test.
0: And then it indicated even STI testing.
1: Yes, agreed. And And we talked about a really good STI history, but testing again would be really helpful. Um, additional lab tests that I have heard um, used in infertility evaluation would also be AMH or anti-mullerian hormone. And that can really tell us, um, you know, a good, uh, some good information about follicles and whether follicles are able to develop to a
0: good size. Right. I remember during my infertility journey having HSG and having to go to the hospital for this sort of... Um, I guess, high-tech view of my uterus. Yeah, absolutely. And knowing that the HSG can also help to unclog block tubes and look at patency of the uterus and also decide if there's maybe a uterine defect.
1: Yeah, so the HSG is interesting, and I'm glad you mentioned that. It can be both diagnostic and therapeutic as well. Yeah. We kind of missed the most basic of a pelvic ultrasound too. So is there some clear, you know, um, anatomic issue, structural issue that we can pick up on? Are there fibroids? Are there polyps? Um, How does the endometrial
0: lining look? That can be really helpful as well. And do they have polycystic ovaries? Right. So that's another big indicator with um, infertility.
1: Yeah. So we've talked about some labs and we've talked about some imaging, but there's some tests that um, the individual patient can do themselves, right? And so are they doing basal body temperature tracking? Are they using ovulation predictor kits?
0: Yeah, all of those are important. I think when you're doing an initial workup and remembering what our definition of infertility is, you know, it's unprotected intercourse um, with no pregnancy resulting after a year, if they're thirty five or younger, right, and if they're over thirty five, they only get six months. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we we're usually not working patients up. I know people can be really anxious when they haven't gotten pregnant in five or six months, especially young people. Right. Um, but there are some things that we can do before they have a definition of true infertility, like a semen analysis.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that can be a really nice um, evaluation. As Missy talked about of, you know, not only just like the volume of the semen, but what's the sperm number, the sperm concentration, the motility, the vitality, the morphology. Does it? look like it's supposed to? Does it have a head and a tail and only one of each? Um, And then even the pH of the semen can be important and how that interacts with um, the female patient's uh, pH.
0: I think then, you know, making a good list of differentials and being able to collaborate um, is important because do our patients need IUI or intrauterine insemination or do they need assisted reproductive um, technology? They need IVF. Um, Or do they need even something more um, extreme? Like, do they need um, an embryo donor? Do they need a gestational carrier um, or a surrogate?
1: Yeah. And one of the things there that we missed out on that is pretty common would be ovulation stimulation. And so do they just need a little bit of help with some maybe medication
0: to get them ovulating regularly? Right. And, you know, that's where as midwives, we do a great job of collaborating with um, other providers, um, you know, with Uh, letrozole or Clomid. You know, how can we get somebody ovulating on on the regular?
1: Right, right. Um, And so those are some of the medications that are used pretty routinely in infertility management. Also, maybe some progesterone supplementation.
0: Yeah, it can be helpful. Um, And also, you know, even in management of patients, once they do get pregnant, that progesterone can also play, you know, a a vital part in maintaining a pregnancy.
1: Yeah. So when we talked about anatomic um, complications, like maybe we have tubal factors or uterine or even, you know, male factors like a varicocele, potentially surgery would be necessary. And we can refer to our physician colleagues that are surgeons. But then you brought up Assisted reproductive therapies and IVF and IUI and and who typically would manage those?
0: Well, generally that's a group of specialists that that's pretty much all they do is reproductive endocrinology. So we would be looking to you know send our patients to those kinds of experts. Um, My first clinical practice had a reproductive endocrinologist um, on the backside of our office, so literally we could walk through a door and consult with them. And I it was like so. reassuring to say like, here's a bunch of labs from this patient and I'm not really sure what's going on, but, you know, could you give me some guidance about what you think the next steps are for this patient?
1: That can be so helpful that they were so close and that you had that really good relationship. And I think all of us as providers have those people that we feel comfortable referring to. But I certainly have learned over the years that um, who an individual chooses for their reproductive endocrinologist is really important. And that's such a close relationship and how they interact with the nursing staff in the office and the technicians and so forth. And so it's kind of like finding the perfect pair of jeans. Not everyone's going to have the same fit.
0: Yeah. And um, that bedside manner in infertility I think is really, really important. What kind of a person is that provider? Are they nice to their staff? Is it somebody that you're excited to go see? Because, in my experience, that you're going to see them a lot, and you also need to know that if you need to have a breakdown and cry, that you want that provider, you want to know that that provider is going to be there to be able to handle that.
1: Well, that's a really good point. So, Missy, you've mentioned a couple of times in our past episodes about your own infertility. Um, journey. And are you, would you be willing to share a little bit about that with us today? Cause I think that perspective can be really helpful.
0: Sure. Um, yeah, my infertility journey, um, it, it sounds a lot like other people's and, but what I also try to remember is, is that one infertility journey is not another person's and they all look a little different. Um, but in the end, all of us women who can't get pregnant and want to get pregnant all have the same kind of swirling feelings. So I had been married a year, um, and we decided to try to start having a baby and I wasn't, um, I was 30 or 31, not very old. Um, always had had regular periods, never, um, any issues, no history of STIs. I mean, all the things that I thought like I was healthy, normal weight. Um, and, um, we tried for a year and nothing. And I thought, well, I'm going to start using ovulation predictors. Like, let's just make sure that we're doing this right. And, you know, me being a midwife is thinking like, why the heck? Right? Well, I'm just as you're talking, I'm thinking that had to be so hard as a
1: midwife too, because you know all the things and you were doing all the
0: right things. And that had to be really hard. I think mentally the worst part for me was having to take care of patients who either weren't excited about their pregnancies or oops, got pregnant or um, it just, that was a really difficult professional time for me. Right. and and I mean,
1: you can certainly be happy for other people, but it can be a real struggle emotionally.
0: Yes. And I think that was, that took a big toll on me as I was going through that journey. Um, But after a year, one of my midwife colleagues who took care of me through my pregnancy when I did get pregnant said, you know, let's just do a few things and, you know, all of my tests look normal and good. Um, and then we ended up doing, you know, semen analysis and finding out that my partner had 100% abnormal sperm morphology. Mm. So it meant that, you know, a certain percentage of the sperm didn't have any head. And the other ones that did have heads didn't have tails. So everything was swimming in circles or not swimming at all, or the head was mouth shaped so it couldn't penetrate the egg. Mm -hmm. So I was still working in that clinic where I had those um, those reproductive endocrinologists behind us. And I got the lab result like off of the computer and somebody handed it to me and I was like, I don't even know what this means. So I ran it back to this physician that I like clearly trusted and I said, what does this mean? And he gave me this look and I thought, oh my gosh, he's going to tell me something terrible. And I just remember slumping down in the chair in his office and just bawling. And he was like, it's okay, we'll fix you. We'll just use IVF with ICSI. And I was like, I don't know what that is. Um, And so that is kind of where we began our IVF journey. And Um, at the time they said, well, you need to have an IUI first because maybe if we just get the sperm closer to the egg, but they weren't normal sperm. So no. So we had one IUI that I didn't have any real hope in working.
1: And I'm guessing maybe in the infertility journey, that was just a step you had to go through.
0: It was, it was absolutely a step that they were like, well, it's not expensive. It's not super invasive. And I'm like, well, it's invasive enough. Right. Um, and then we really started getting pretty serious about knowing that we needed IVF. Um, and that was, again, very hard as a midwife to go through IVF and um, and to really just think about like, gosh, I want a baby so bad. And, and I can't do this by myself. But like you were saying a bit ago, I picked a provider who was like this mammoth of a person. And he just looked like a big teddy bear. And I knew in my heart of hearts that if something bad was going to happen, that this physician was just not going to like, let me crumble. He was just going to be like the best provider for me and my partner.
1: And that's amazing to have that kind of trust. And so, uh, finding that right fit for individual patients is really important.
0: And it's hard because we're in a hurry, right? Like, Oh, I don't want to meet a bunch of doctors because I just want somebody to get me pregnant. But in this particular case, I was very careful about who I picked. And um, and we did need ICSI, which is intracytoplasmic sperm injection. And that means that they basically take the sperm and they force them into an egg, which is like, here, I know you don't want to go here, but I'm going to put you here anyway. Um, and that's highly scientific. And I'm so glad that there are scientists that Do things like that. Yay science. Yay science. Um, But on the flip side of that, I had four cycles of IVF before I actually got pregnant. Um, I did get pregnant on one of my early cycles and had a really early loss. Um, And they did some additional workup. And um, I have like an anti S that they were like, oh, maybe we need to try Lovinox and some other things. And so. Funny, um, I had 27 embryos off of my first um, fresh cycle and didn't get pregnant in that very first cycle off of the however many that they implanted. And then I had, um, well, actually, my first cycle, I didn't have enough to freeze. Then my second cycle, I had 27 embryos, my second fresh cycle, and still didn't get pregnant on a fresh cycle. Now, the difference between fresh and frozen, right? That means did they just go in and get the eggs and um, fertilize them and then put them back? Or did... Did they take the already fertilized eggs and then freeze them right. and then thaw them and put them in? So I had two fresh cycles that were both unsuccessful. Um, my my first frozen cycle was unsuccessful. And then finally I got down to these, I'd had these 27 embryos that we had made. Um, and I got down to like my last five that were in the freezer and uh, we called, we we lovingly called them snow babies because they were in a deep freeze somewhere. And when they thawed them, two of them didn't survive. So I had three. And when you have IVF, they they grade your eggs. Like if they're A eggs or B eggs or C or D. Yeah. And these were crappy graded. Never for my high-performing 4.0 did I want, you know, C, D, D, C, B eggs, embryos. But that's what I had. And my my endocrinologist was like, we're just going to put them all three in. And I was like, okay, let's just go for it. And at that point, I just was sort of mentally checked out.
1: Yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm guessing, I mean, as you're talking, three implanted is quite a bit around here. Like I feel like a lot of places won't do more than two, but I'm guessing based on the quality is how they made that decision.
0: Yes. And in previous cycles, they would have only put two in. It it kind of depends on how they look. Um also sort of as an aside, you know, back in the process, I always knew when I wasn't pregnant mm-hmm. because I would go in for labs on the day that that they said I should have a higher hCG and if I wasn't pregnant, they waited to call me until the end of the day when they had time to like let me cry and be upset and have questions. I mean, sometimes I would be on the phone with them for an hour. Mm-hmm. But you knew that if you didn't get a call, you weren't pregnant. You weren't pregnant. So that was um also something to sort of deal with. Um, but when they put my my three little poorly graded embryos in, I was just like, this is, this is you know, I'm going to have to have another fresh cycle and it's not going to be a lot of fun. And um, I went home and on my birthday that year, the nurse actually called at like 1130. And um, I was like, why is Mandy calling me? Like, that's so weird. I just had my blood drawn at like 7 a.m. And Mandy um, was like, hey, Missy. And I'm like, yeah. And she goes, happy birthday. And I was like, oh, thanks. That's so sweet. And she goes, you're going to be a mom. And I was like, I'm what? That's She's
1: amazing. like, you're going to be a
0: mom. Happy birthday. And I was like, oh, my gosh, no. Like, this is not possible. Um, so two of my three embryos implanted. Um, and I was on Lovenox every day and progesterone every day. Um yeah. Feeling really good. I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Like I was living my best life, not, (laughs) um, and you know, lost one baby and ended up with one, you know, perfectly healthy little boy who I, I love and adore. But, um, so for me as a midwife, like so much went into this. So when I was on stimulation drugs for fresh cycles, I would take like four syringes at once and I would drive to labor and delivery and I would have the nurses each take a syringe and all stab me at once. Or when I had to have progesterone every night, like in my butt, like right, you know, I am into my glute. Like I would take that over. I'm like, I can't do that myself. Mm -hmm. Um, I just, there were like people who rallied around me when I went through infertility. And I had friends who would call me and be like, I just wanted you to be the first person to know that I'm pregnant because I don't want you to be upset. I don't want you to be sad. And I thought, gosh, what a terrible thing to think. But my midwife colleagues and the midwife who was my provider really like provided a level of emotional support that if I wasn't getting that from my reproductive endocrinologist, I would have gotten it from them. And that made a huge difference.
1: Yeah, it's so important. And there's so much more than just the physiology and pathophys and the evidence-based care that you were getting. It was so much about the emotional support.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, it was the biggest party on labor and delivery the day that that baby was born. Um, you know, there were so many nurses and so many physicians and so many midwives and just people. I just remember there being so many people, but also being like, these are all these people who love this baby and know how hard I worked for him.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think it's important for people to know, and I think we know this as midwives that your journey with the next pregnancy wasn't the same and that it didn't require all of that intervention and work and it still meant just as much to
0: you and was just as important. (laughs) So it's very funny and I have to give a shout out to my mom, Diane, that um, she had bought us these cooling pads on a whim on a shopping trip. She said, you know, I noticed that the two of you always have your laptops on your lap. Like maybe you should try this. It was like a little lap tray and it had a fan in it. And the fan was USB-powered, so you just, like, plugged it into your computer. And we started using them because we thought, oh, that's super smart. The bottom of my computer is probably pretty hot. She bought those for us, like, end of September, beginning of October. And for those of you who don't know anything about sperm morphology, it takes 90 days to change sperm morphology. And we had no idea. And we got spontaneously pregnant that December. That's crazy. So crazy. Um, it's the craziest, you know, and then we had to call our parents and be like, guess what? We're pregnant. And they're like, no, I actually, my mom was driving and I had to tell her to like, are you driving? Yes. Can you pull off the road for a second? Cause you can't wreck when I tell you this news. And she was like, it's a miracle. And I was like, no, it's a cooling pad. (laughs) That's amazing. I mean, it's just something I was like, gosh, we could have saved $40,000 if we would have just known about a silly cooling pad beforehand.
1: Well, and knowing what we know, who knows if that would have been the thing that would have done it the first time. So, yeah.
0: Right. So, um, as a nurse midwife now, I feel like I have a very special place in my heart for not only moms who come to me for antepartum care who have gone through infertility, or women who have come to me for preconception who are going through infertility, but how much joy there is in their intrapartum experiences. Yeah,
1: yeah, and you know, I think there is so much joy, but I think it's also really important to acknowledge that there was probably a lot of anxiety just going through the pregnancy because of. The previous loss that you had had, even losing the second, um, you know, twin, and that you
0: probably were a little bit anxious throughout the whole pregnancy. I tease now that I should be careful what I ask God for, because I used to pray every night that I could get pregnant, and that if He would just let me get pregnant. I would stand on my head naked and vomit 10 times a day if I needed to. (laughs) So note to self, be careful what you ask for because while I didn't have to stand on my head, I still did vomit like five times a day for like 20 weeks. Right. And also I had to stick myself with Lovenox and progesterone. And that's just not a normal pregnancy when you have your own personal sharps container in your kitchen. Um, but I was, I was pretty anxious and didn't gain a lot of weight. So there was, you know, concerns for growth restriction and, you know, having a SGA baby and, um, yeah, it, it, I was very anxious until he got here and I had a, a pretty good, pretty long intrapartum course. I pushed a really long time with a big baby and my sweet little IVF baby had his arm around his neck and that never helps anything. Um, and I also tease him that I spent his college fund having him, so he has to go to community college. So funny. $40,000 later. Um, I wouldn't trade him for anything. He is amazing. Um, but it, I think it's super important. And the, sort of the moral of this story is that, you know, when those patients come back to you um, for really good evidence-based midwifery care that, um, that you do as a midwife play a really vital role um, in their pregnancy Um, Even if they came to you from reproductive endocrinology, like, because they needed help getting pregnant.
1: Right. Absolutely. And, and all of the things that you've shared with us today are so helpful. I think for all of us in clinical practice and for students and new grads that are thinking about what their, what their life is going to look like as a provider. So thanks for sharing. I know that was a really personal story.
0: Yeah. I, and I do want it to be like, I want to midwives to understand that they sometimes are the beacon of light. And they can light, you know, a path for a patient. Um, And the midwife who took care of me, like, I'm, you know, forever in debt that she was so gracious and empathetic and understanding. And um, that's the kind of midwife that I want to be for those kinds of patients.
1: Well, and I, I would say you are being that beacon of light for all of us and really helping lead the way for good
0: providers. Thanks. Well, thanks so much for joining us. This was a really fun conversation and we can't wait to see you again. Yeah, take care of yourselves. We'll see you next time.